Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. And I am here with the beautiful, amazing Christiana Kimmich. Hello. Although I don't know about beautiful today. <laughs> You're like always beautiful. Oh, she would say that if I showed up to this with a trash bag. Hey, it could be a new thing. Remember when uh, Missy Elliott did it in that video? I can't she, stand the rain. I love her. Oh she my made gosh. black trash bags cool. Just saying. She did. That is so true. Just Missy. saying. Missy makes anything look great, though. So I'm oh saying. So black trash bag it up. You know, I don't know if I could pull off what Missy can pull off, but I, her, her music is some of my favorite music to dance to ever. Like the choreography I've learned to her music is just like she's so musical and she has so many amazing layers in her music. It's just, you can just pull from anything. Oh, love Missy Elliott. Shout out to Missy Elliott. If you're listening to this at all, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. She's awesome. So black dress bag. Okay, let me try it. I'm going to, I'm just going to show up. Even though it'll be horrible for the sound because you'll just hear crinkling, I'm just going to show up. By the way, everybody, we're still on video. We're not in the podcast booth together yet. Hopefully coming soon. But still, can you imagine if I, what if I actually showed up in a black trash bag and all you heard was like the whole time? We'd probably lose followers. I think we would. Listeners. Or people would be like, what's happening? (laughs) What is happening? Why is there crinkles in the sound? So... I don't even know what day it is. If Are you losing track of time? Because I'm losing time. I'm losing track of time. I, this morning, I lost track of episode numbers, which they're all in the system correctly. But I'm texting Ashley to, you know, to book us for these next after the episodes. And she's that like... That feels much more normal. That, that I usually am pretty good with you, that. You're, you're incredible with it. And I, I just... I was like, okay, we're doing episode 46. And she's like, that was... And after the episode that we've already recorded, and I was like, oh. <laughs> so today, wait, let me let me get numbers up on my screen so I'm sure to not mess this up. I can't stand the rain. It's my, my window. window. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so this is episode 49. We are talking about and reviewing. Amy Dresner and Jay Schiffman's episodes, which I am staring at the numbers right now, so I get it right, are episodes 47 uh-huh. and 48. I did Ooh, it. You did it. And even though you're going to be listening to this on a Thursday, we are recording this on a Monday. So now you you just got a glimpse into what's happening with us and how far ahead we record things. Yeah, I don't know what day it is. I barely know where I live. Actually, that's not true. I know exactly where I live because I have not left that place. Oh my God. I'm starting to feel insane. Yeah. It's, it, it's definitely, it's an exercise in gratitude of not grumbling whenever all of this is over. And I have to like go out and mm-hmm. run errands, right? Just these mundane things that we so took for granted on a daily basis. Oh yeah. And just the, those freedoms, right? Just to be able to just go and like not even think about it. Like you just you just get to go to the grocery store and it's something you're frustrated about. It's just funny because now I you're don't like, think it'll ever be the same. Ah. I don't actually think it'll ever be the same. But do you think we're gonna have perma masks? Not sure, not sure. But uh, Jackson, I was talking to Jackson last night, and he said to me, my uh, my three year old toddler, and he said. 
Mommy, when the cooties go away, I want to go in a store and touch everything. Oh, and I just, oh, it, my heart broke. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, buddy. I know. I know. So sad. You know, a good place to take them, which I think you already have. Cause I feel like I told you this about this place. Discovery site. No, not discovery. What is it called? The discovery, the discovery cube. cube. Yes. This is in Orange County. So any locals, it's phenomenal. It's a science center. It's just all hands-on kids. Just, I mean, it's probably a, you know, germ fest, but uh, it's phenomenal. And it's super cool to see like all these experiments and all these things that kids mm-hmm. can like touch and watch come to life uh, right before their eyes. So I love taking place. them to museums or mm-hmm. I, or so I loved fun. past loved. tense. Hey, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. I know there's going to be step downs to it, but it's going to come back. I believe. I believe. I believe. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm taking it one day at a time. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. I don't, know, I don't know which day, but one day at a time. I don't know which well, day. Of- today you're in Monday. So, I, I mean, again, sorry to mess anybody up because we're recording this. and We're and recording you're gonna on hearing, a Monday. Yeah. We're recording on a Monday. You're going to be hearing this on a Thursday, but today's Monday for you, Ash, and it's going to be okay. Today's your daily reminder that it's going to be okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So, we are, rec- we are recording. We're reviewing episode or we're I don't care about the episode number we're reviewing Jay Mm -hmm. and Amy yep and what awesome episodes these were I mean again we say this about everyone but one day I'm gonna be like that was shitty (laughs) 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 that was the mediocre We'll have to record a, a faux person so that you can say that and no one Mm -hmm. there's no backlash yeah exactly (laughs) we just Uh, won't tell anybody exactly (laughs) Amy's was so much fun, right? Because she's just she so me up. funny. She cracked me up, man. She cracked me up. And she just went hard in the paint on her sex addiction stories. <laughs> she did. I was dying. And she was pretty... So we recorded Amy to give you guys a little bit of a time frame. Right? With podcasts, uh, a lot of the times you'll book guests, and you know this if you've done this before, guests weeks ahead of time, you know, so that you can have time to edit the episode and get all their, all their materials ready. Amy, we recorded right around the same time as Noah Shaw, which was like basically right after all this lockdown stuff started happening. And so she was really, really frustrated. She was really, really anxious. And, you know, we're so grateful that, you know, she, as well as our other guests made the decision to go ahead with the podcast anyways. And, um, what we really liked about it was it was just really authentic. She was just really real about where she was at, some of the struggles she was having. Um, and then, you know, going into her story, which was, she just tells in such a hilarious way. I love her just dry humor. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's a very, it's a very gritty, entertaining story. And I, you know, obviously she, she wrote the book, My Fair Junkie, which has done very well. And they're looking at making it into a TV show if they ever start filming TV again. And, you know, I dig that. Like, I think that's entertaining. I, I think it's important also to see how money can complicate addiction and recovery. (laughs) And, you know, just at that contrast to, I think a lot of the times people think, well, if you have a lot of money, that always makes things better. And 
when it comes to addiction, I have often seen that a lot of money makes things worse and takes a lot longer for the bottom to show up because there's a lot of padding there, right? There's a lot of leeway, whereas you can't buy your way out of, you know, eventually you can't buy your way out of problems, but initially you can. And so it's a different experience. And I think it's important to see that it affects people from all walks of life. And yeah, I thought she did a really good job of of describing that. And of course it was hilarious and she's hilarious. And, you know, we got to talk a bit about how the lockdown and this shelter in place and COVID is affecting everybody. And, you know, she shared that it's deeply affecting her, which I, I, you know, it, it took me, I was joking with my friend. I called her I did a like a, a conference call with two of my friend, girlfriend, longtime girlfriends, and I was super upset about COVID and super upset. And it had been like a month and a half or six weeks. It had been like something. And they were like, Ashley, you're just starting to get upset. Like, where have you been on this? We've been <laughs> crying for weeks. And I was like, it just hit me. Like, I'm a slow learner. And, uh, you know, I think it has... I've watched... Um, you know, people die uh, recently as a result, um, suicide, oh, several overdoses, people just getting loaded, you know, not dying, but relapsing. It's hard to watch. Would that have happened anyway? I, You know, who's to say, but certainly isn't helping. So that's been, uh, that's been tough. And she, it was good to talk, to, you know, just kind of wrap out about that with her and also getting the perspective of the female sex addict. I think that was really a good thing. I don't think a lot of people want to talk about that. I don't think a lot of people are willing to talk about that in in the level of detail she was. And I think it's really important. I really connected to her being an, a sex sex and love addicts, or it was either sex and love addicts or sex addicts anonymous meeting. And it was all guys and her. And I was dealing early in my recovery, I was dealing with some relationship issues and I went to sex and love addicts anonymous. And, you know, it was like a lot of guys and I felt like, you know, that was not super helpful, right? Um, you know, uh, but it, it was an interesting I think it's a really important, interesting, important topic because cross addiction, right? Like you start with one addiction and you, and you put that one down and another one pops up. Right. This is something we haven't really talked a whole lot about before. How does that feel? What does that do to someone who is in the process of recovery from a sex addiction whenever they're showing up and one gender is represented and another really isn't so much? Like, is there less of an opportunity to find recovery? Is there more of an op- opportunity? Like what does that feel kind of like I'm alone in this or it's an opportunity for you to engage in in the behavior. It's an opportunity like particularly like you're going to a meeting where you're saying like I'm having struggles with this topic and it's a whole bunch of other people, <laughs> other dudes who are having trouble with the t- you know what like, I mean? Like unless everybody's in long-term recovery or I don't know. It's an interesting, it's, it's one of those places where I think it's really important to have a lot of gender specific support because that it just really complicates things. And, you know, my, my situation was not how, uh, Amy described hers, but I found myself using male attention to, as my source of self-esteem and feel good. 
and uh, and and not be you know as with anything when you when you have the addictive personality, you know you'll start to latch on to anything that is a source of feel good and just do that until the wheels fall off. And you know I think it's a normal thing, but I, I yeah that was a that that image that she showed and my experience with that was that it wasn't that the gender specific thing is important. I can like I can only imagine how that feels, right? To you're seeking help, but you've got to kind of find those specific places where you're supported and where you're going, where there's men or where there's women or people that are, you know, like-minded who need need help as well. Are there places where like if someone is seeking that because I feel like sex addiction is so much more commonly talked about with men versus Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. And I think it needs to be talked about more because there are women that are struggling with that and there shouldn't be shame because of that. Are there places where if a woman is seeking help, but she's not wanting to have that experience where she's in a room with a bunch of men, do you know of any resources or places where, where they could go? Yes, I do. Okay. So a couple things. There are a bunch of sex addiction quizzes and tests on the internet, which I highly suggest taking and just checking out if you're curious. There also Patrick, Dr. Patrick Carnes is one of the leaders in the space, and he has a ton of books that uh, are really amazing and helpful. Um, you can check out sexhelp.com. Also, um, you, if you find a certified sex addiction therapist, they are often very helpful. The Meadows has an amazing program for sex addiction. Highly, highly, highly recommend that. Uh, that is in that is in Arizona. The Karen Treatment Centers they have a program that's very good. There is a sex addiction treatment center at the Ranch in Tennessee. Uh, residential sexual addiction treatment program. There's also right now a 10-day telehealth intensive for sex addiction at Begin Again Institute. So trauma-induced sex addiction model. Uh, Definitely think you you guys should check this out. 10-day telehealth intensive for sex addiction at Begin Again Institute. www.beginagaininstitute.com. And they have sample schedules, uh, really, really amazing stuff. So I would check that out. Awesome. Those are great resources. Can you, um, if maybe somebody hasn't heard a little bit about sex addiction, what it truly means, would you be able to give like a little blurb on that so that someone can have like a basic level understanding of what that is? Okay. So for people who don't know, sex addiction, I'm just going to give the very clinical terminology. It's described as a compulsive need to perform sexual acts in order to achieve the kind of quote-unquote fix that a person with alcohol use disorder gets from a drink or someone with opiate use disorder gets from using opiates. Sex addiction, the compulsive behavior described here, should not be confused with disorders such as pedophilia, and bestiality. For some people, sex addiction can be highly dangerous and result in considerable difficulties with relationships. Like drug and alcohol dependence, it has the potential to negatively impact a person's physical and mental health, personal relationships, quality of life, and safety. 
It's believed that a person with sex addiction will seek out multiple sex partners, though this is in itself not necessarily a sign of a disorder. Some report that it may manifest itself as compulsive need to masturbate, view pornography, or be in sexually stimulating situations. A person with sex addiction may significantly alter their life and activities in order to perform sexual acts multiple times a day and are reportedly unable to control their behaviors despite severe negative consequences. Here are some of the symptoms. Chronic obsessive sexual thoughts and fantasies, compulsive relations with multiple partners, including strangers, lying to cover behaviors, preoccupation with having sex, even when it interferes with daily life, productivity, work, performance, and so on, inability to stop or control the behaviors, putting oneself or others in danger due to sexual behavior, feeling remorse or guilt after sex, experiencing other negative personal or professional consequences. So, I mean, really, I mean the beginning part to me where it was like compulsive need to achieve the fix, highly dangerous. Like I think there are a lot of people who engage in too much masturbation or obsessive sexual thoughts and fantasies or um, compulsive relations with partners where it doesn't necessarily get dangerous, but it's makes their life unmanageable or unpleasant. Um, I think the big thing is feeling remorse or guilt after sex and continuing to do it over and over again. And then the inability to stop or control the behaviors, like those are the types of things that start to get out of hand. And really what I like to say is like, if sex is causing your life problems, then it maybe you have a sex problem, right? Like it's like I say with alcohol and drugs, like how do you know you have a problem? It's like, well, for normal people, their sex does not cause them problems other than pregnancy, which, you know, that's a whole different story. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, it isn't a problem, right? So if it's a problem, like a relatively decent problem, then maybe there's a problem. Like just go with the basics. Stop. Don't worry about the label, the, the diagnosis, like worry about what it is that you're trying to make better. Right. And the fact just, I love how that simplified it because I've had to describe, you know, people come to me all the time, you know, now that, you know, we we work here and, and they're, they want to know, well, how can I tell if my spouse, brother, friend has an alcohol problem or is an alcoholic? And that's the thing that I say back to them every time. You'll know if they have a problem because alcohol is causing them problems. Right. It's so simple. It's like, is it, is it a problem? Yes. Or no, you know, and it, it's... Yeah, like keep it really simple. Answer. You don't need to worry about whether or not you're, you have a disorder as as identified in the, you know, DSM. Like just keep it real simple. Like is my use of X, what insert whatever you want it to be, tree licking, whatever, whatever. <laughs> like, like, we really... Tree like, licking! Just like <laughs> insert whatever it is into the equation. Is it causing me problems? And now you know whether or not you have a problem. Now, does that mean you have a lifelong problem that requires complete abstinence? I have no idea. Maybe not, right? But if if the question is, should I look into this further? The answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is yes. If, 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 you know, doing X, would I insert X, equals problem, right? Somehow problems always happen or come around whenever you do X or or negative consequences or undesirable effects, whatever it is. Every time I eat sugar, I get fatter 
or every time I smoke a cigarette, I have trouble breathing or whatever it is. Insert your... During quarantine, sugar does not count as calories. Right, right, right. I'm just letting you know that right now. Oh, okay. Perfect. Perfect. Good to know. Sorry. That's just me. So then this won't work for that. But insert whatever (laughs) other than quarantine and the formula works. Like, is it causing you problems? Okay. You have a problem that you should look into. Does that mean they're an alcoholic or a drug addict or, you know, does that mean they require complete abstinence? I don't know. That's where the extra research, the extra investigation, the extra attention towards what this looks like comes in and then you can see. But again, we go back to, and this is something that they, you know, I I was taught early on, which is normal people, alcohol does not cause normal people problems. It just doesn't. They they go out, they have, you know, it just, it doesn't. And so if it's just not another thought about it. No, it's part of the thing. And maybe you get a headache, you know, maybe you would, but, but again, it's not, you know, you may be binge drinking or over drinking and it's causing you problems and that's something you need to look at, but it doesn't mean you need to stop altogether. I don't, you know, again, I don't, I can't speak to, there's no, you know, solution for every single situation is not the same. And I just think that the the easiest place to start is, is it causing me problems? And then go and look at it further from there. And then you start to, when you, once you start to dig up, like, okay, I find myself drinking a little bit too often, uh, but it's really manageable. It's not causing me any other problems. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Can I stop? Can I remove that, that, you know, that drinking on Thursday night? What happens when I do it? Am I uncomfortable? Do I have anxiety? Was it easy? After a few weeks, I didn't notice it. Or I'm sweating bullets trying to keep myself from drinking on Thursday nights. You know, what's, you know, that's where the investigation comes in. Like what, how, what is my reaction to removing that? Because the reaction when you're addicted to something, the reaction of removing that thing or behavior is very strong. And that's something to take a look at. That's good. That's super helpful. And uh, you guys will have those resources if you in the show notes. So if you don't know how to get to show notes, then what you do is you click on the episode cover art uh, and swipe up and you should see the blurb from this episode. So the summary of the episode, along with links to every single resource that we talk about. And this is for every single episode that we discuss. We'll always include links to resources. If we ever cite any articles, those will be in there. Uh, the links to every, you know, just every resource that we're talking about. It's there for you so that you can just go ahead and click on it uh, along with the links to our podcast, social media as well, and website and other episodes. So yeah, Amy was phenomenal. I'm so thankful that she was, she shared about that and she was so honest. And I think it's, that's where we're going to continue to break the stigma. I think it's finally starting to happen in a lot of ways with alcohol, with alcoholism, with with even drugs as well. People are starting to understand a little bit more. Sex addiction's newer. I really, I feel like it's not understood quite as much. It's not newer in regards to the information is new that's out there. It's just, it's not widely talked about. It's not widely distributed because of the opioid crisis. Now, opioids and prescription drugs and a lot of these Shame. other things. Are getting- <laughs> Gosh, I know. I mean, particularly women, but yeah, there's a lot of shame around that. I mean, which is awful. Shame's a horrible emotion, you know. No one, you're already, and and 
as someone who is in active addiction, that is there's already so much piled up anyways. Yeah. And then getting it from others or society. It's just, it's, it's horrible seeing what, what happens with that. I think it's really hard. Sex addiction is one of those things that's also really difficult because in almost all the situations that involve another person, typically that other person is being harmed. And so here's a person who's going around sleeping with lots of people, right? And that is not something that looks like a, oh, this person is suffering. Oh, this, you know, this, like it just, it doesn't, there's a lot of socially acceptable ways to describe that. Like that person is an abuser that, you know, and maybe that's true. But again, it's, I think it's, you know, when you see a guy who cheats on his wife constantly and, you know, pays for sex and can't stop finding out, you know, he's a cheater and a homewrecker. And those things are also true, right? And so I think that makes it very difficult to reconcile (laughs) this idea. You know, and I suppose it's the same with alcoholism. It's like, it's very difficult to have compassion for people who are causing massive destruction in your life. And that's just the truth. I mean, they're suffering, yes. And they have a problem, yes. And they're a tornado ripping up your life. And I, you know, I understand why that is difficult to have compassion. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, just a, a, a truth and, and part of addiction is dealing with that stigma. But switching gears to Jay, what did you think about that? Okay, so I loved Jay's episode. First of all, Jay's such a, a nice person. He's so easy mm-hmm. to have a conversation mm-hmm. with. Um, his interv- your, your interview sounded amazing with him. I just feel like you guys had a lot of like chemistry mm-hmm. over the airwaves. And it was just like you guys just took each other's lead. And just there was a lot of like good energy. Just kind of like you can tell when somebody kind of picks some, something up and they're adding and then somebody else is adding. And it's just really... I was so energized just listening to it the whole time. But I thought it was really interesting because Jay talked specifically about prescription pills and the impact that that had on him. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've ever had an episode that talked specifically about just that. Not with alcohol, not paired as anything else. And, And I just, it was really, it was really eye opening because I, so I watched. Now I need to go back and find it so I can put it in the show notes. But I sounds so weird. I watched it and I don't remember what it was called. But I'm I'm on Netflix, right? Just constantly looking up like the next behavioral health thing that I can watch and just get <laughs> get even more educated uh, and stay on top of what's going on. You're like I've been at this for years. Um, no, I d- it, I just you you get saturated. You do get saturated. I'm like, make me laugh. Anything to make me laugh. <laughs> I have those moments too. I, you know, side note, you know what my quarantine binge has been? What? I shouldn't say binge. My quarantine, like, hey, I need, like, I need to almost like calm down. So I'm going to watch this. Yeah. You will never guess. Okay. Never <laughs> guess. Uh, it's a cartoon. Tom and Jerry. No, it's South Park. I don't know what it is. <laughs> South Park has been calming me down. I don't know. Hey, that's wonderful. You found something. I mean, that's a tool. It's, it's fabulous because it's their equal opportunity make funners. They'll make fun of anything and anyone anywhere. And I just find that so hilarious. I 
I, I don't know. It, it's just, it's that just weird, strange humor that just gets me. And it just, it's, it's been, it actually made me go, I fell asleep to it the other night. I was like, I feel very relaxed and I had great dreams. <laughs> oh my God. That's hysterical. <laughs> South Park with South Park. And I'm an empath, so I can't watch anything at night that has any kind of like, ah, like anything that's, you know, violent or graphic because I'll dream about it and, and I'll wake up kind of disturbed. Um, so I usually have to watch like new girl or like friends or mm-hmm. something just real easy going. But yeah, anyway, South Park. I've discovered a comedian that made me just like belly laugh. Which um, one? Her name is Leanne Morgan. She she's so funny. She had her tour was called the Big Panty Tour. She's <laughs> She's this Southern, she's got like, she's Southern and she just tells stories about her life and of like being a mom and like raising kids and, and she's got a heavy Southern accent and it is so (laughs) funny. It is so, I really, honestly, she, I just love her. Lee Ann Morgan just gives like, just tells funny stories. I think she probably started just telling funny stories and... (laughs) People were like, you have to take this show on the road. Uh, she's so good. She's so good. And she's been making me making me laugh and making my quarantine making my quarantine a little bit easier. <laughs> I'll have to watch her. She sounds awesome. I keep going back to the comedian I keep going back to is Sebastian Maniscalco. Oh my God, he's so funny. Wait. I cry. I'm on the floor whenever oh, yeah. he's telling his doing his his stand-up routine. I love how he like hits the mic with like an emphasis. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. If you guys haven't checked him out, he's Italian and his family stories put me on the floor. It's there's, oh my gosh. And he's, he's, here's the funny thing. He says the things that are in my head that I don't want to say. Cause I'm like, Oh, I, I want to be so nice to people. But whenever we're like, he's like talks about going to whole foods and someone's like wiping their nose and then reaching for vegetables or, you know, someone's at the pool and they've got a big old, like five band-aids on their feet. You can tell that he's OCD. Uh, like that he's super OCD, which is so I could see why, because I always laugh. Like I can tell he's super OCD and that like that stuff's like occurs to him where I'm like, eh, whatever. Like <laughs> My favorite is when he talks about his family versus his wife's family. Oh yeah. Too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's fun. I, oh my gosh. You guys check him out. He is awesome. He'll keep you laughing. I don't care who you are. It's great. The other one is Mike Spienberg. S-P-E-E-N-B-E-R-G. Mike Spienberg. He is a comedian and he does um, online gatherings, parties. Like he'll do, he'll come to like a Zoom laugh link he does. And he is hysterical, like genuinely hysterical. Um, I love that. Yeah. As Zoom laugh link. Ooh, I'm going to have to join in. That's yeah. amazing. Mike Spienberg. Um, I feel like I've heard his name before. I've just never watched his He routine. does this whole thing about how like he grew up, he grew up, uh, I think the South or Midwest. And he's like, yeah, I, I'm not Jewish just for, you know, Spienberg. Like, like <laughs> he does, I, I, I'm totally botching it, but he, it's really funny. He's funny. I, I, I might want to get him on the podcast, but anyway, Ooh, let's see if we can get him and Sebastian 
on the, oh my gosh, I would just. So good. I would cry. That'd be amazing. Okay. So back to Jay. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I didn't Sorry. know where I left off with Jay. How Side did that even, Side how did you, I know I told Ashley, I haven't had enough coffee today. So I've been trying to gulp down some so I can be coherent for the podcast. Um, but with Jay, so, oh, I think I was, okay. Sorry for the big circle. You guys get to hear our weirdness on this one. The Netflix special that I was watching was Take Your Pills. I may have mentioned it before on this podcast, but what was really interesting, it talks about specifically Adderall and Ritalin and the effects that it's having on kids, uh, the effects that it's having on college students, how easy it is just to like buy pills for studying, how it's very normalized and people aren't realizing that it's what they're putting into their body is speed. What it also talks about is like kids who are diagnosed with ADHD, what true ADHD is, overdiagnosis, overmedication with kids who are younger, and then actually profiles people who uh, there's a child who has true ADHD, like really like cannot function, like it's, I don't know when that was filmed. I'm not sure if the child might be on the autism spectrum or not, but those are the types of symptoms that he was basically presenting with. And they have to have him on ADHD medication. Otherwise he does not complete his schoolwork. He just does not have the natural innate ability um, and also has to work with either like a tutor or a mentor or or, uh, somebody who's walking with him through school. And he works with a doctor for that. But there's the, there's, a lot of people on there. And there's this one uh, young man and I, I forgot his name, but he's in this special. And I actually told Jay about it because Jay hadn't seen it before. And he talks about how he was diagnosed with ADHD. His mom talks about it. She comes on onto this documentary as well. And she talks about the trouble he was having and how at the time ADHD medication was like the thing that you do. This was doing the right thing for your kids. This is being a responsible parent. And she's like, you know, I didn't just throw them on this. I did my research. I called a lot of people, family members who had their kids on this medication. And I felt like it was okay. And uh, what happened with Jay was he was diagnosed with ADHD around 10 or 11 and then put on a prescription for it. And he describes that he used to be like a writer and a poet when he was younger. So really creative. And that all that disappeared when he got put on this medication. And went through basically what he described as like signs of a mood disorder in high school, um, started to show behavioral issues despite the fact that he was on this medication. So he got switched to many different kind of medications, just switching from one to another, and that things just kept getting rougher and rougher. I think he had said by age 23, he was on over 1,300 milligrams of prescribed chemicals per day. He was taking over the legal limit of clonopin every day, and then he became suicidal. And, you know, we talk a lot about the brain, and I am in no way anything close to a neurobiologist, but I do know that substances, including alcohol, do have an effect on your brain chemistry and changes your brain significantly, and how devastating that is, especially to a child whenever you have a developing brain and and what it does specifically to that brain in inhibiting the development of certain things, what things I don't know, but I do know that it inhibits development. And you can probably speak to this a whole lot more than I can because you've studied this a lot more than I have. But that's in essence Jay's story. And and this was like it he 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 just I mean he became suicidal and not because he had any sort of necessary like tr- trauma happening in his life, but because of these chemicals that he's taking on a daily basis since he was 10 years old. 
I think so. This is such a a tough subject because there are a lot of kids that this really help. This stuff really helps, and I think that it's really easy to paint a broad brush of like it's good or it's bad, and it's you know sometimes it's it's a necessary evil, and the the hard part is deciding when that is. One of the things that this is again just my opinion. There's a man named Sir Ken Robinson. He has a couple TED Talks and he has a book called Creative Schools, and I highly recommend it. The reason for that is that I think we make a lot of decisions as parents around keeping our children in school, whatever that, whatever the, the schools in our area, the best school in the area, whatever the, the, you know, the situation may be. And looking at why it is that we're trying that we have to medicate our children to sit in a lecture-based class when maybe the child needs a different type of schooling. And that requires a lot more work from the parents. It requires creativity and research and resources and all sorts of things, which not everybody has. But the reality is that we are giving our children drugs so that they can stay in a lecture-based school system in, in an industrial revolution designed school system. So if we're being honest with ourselves, it's really more about them fitting into the, the system that we have created and not about, okay, this kid cannot concentrate when sitting in a classroom for this many hours a day, looking at the board, absorbing it this way with 25 kids in the classroom. Like they can't absorb that way. That's not how they're going to learn. Now that kid may learn through play, may learn through project-based learning, may learn through all sorts of other creative things. And by going, you know, they may they have outdoor schools where the kids go to schools out, go to school outdoors. Maybe they have to, you know, whatever the situation is for me, it's not about a judgment in terms of what other people, like I completely understand the decision to keep your kid in a really good school and have them have to have drugs to be in that school. I do understand that. I really do. And I'm, I'm not above that, but I also think it's important to be honest with ourselves about why we're giving, why, because why, the thing you talked about with that kid was school. He needed those things to do school in order, in the way that he needed to do school. So we base our, so many things on how we raise our children around, you know, the school system. And particularly in cases where you have a not so great school system, I, I it's lost on me why, you would worry about fitting them into that, but that's neither here nor there. So my little soapbox there is just that we should really be honest with ourselves why we're drugging so many kids, particularly boys, because they can't sit still in class. They can't absorb and they can't function in a classroom of that many children in lockstep doing things that way. That's right. why. That's why. And that's where you see it the most is, is with boys. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you, there's a there's an article on the drugging of the American boy. It's called yeah. So I think highly suggest Sir Ken Robinson, Creative Schools, Grassroots Revolution on on education, and I still think there are kids who probably need the medication. But again, I just encourage. I think it's really important that we're honest with ourselves about why we do the things that we do, and that so much of what 
the medication comes into is because the child is not fitting into the system. Is there something wrong with the child or is the child not fitting into the system? And if the child isn't fitting into the system, it is my opinion that you should question the system. You heard it, ladies and gentlemen, question the system. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know what? I, I completely agree because here, let me tell you my, so my situation, I wasn't diagnosed ADHD. I was actually pretty good at sitting still, but I, I it was about half and half. I could sit still half and, but I, I couldn't focus. That was my biggest thing is I couldn't focus. And I went, we moved a lot. The first school I was in was a private school. And it was very focused on being creative. So it was focused on creative arts, lots and lots of movement, outdoor activity time. They balanced education. They would also, I I remember specifically parts of class where they taught us how to sit still. They taught us. There were times for quiet and times for movement. And they were phenomenal at balancing all of that. I never remember having a focusing problem there. I shouldn't say never, but I, I didn't ever get in trouble for it. I think I just kind of... I've always been a super creative mind. And so it's hard for me to sit and focus on one task for a long period of time because I want to be creating. I want to be putting my hands to something. When we moved to this one school system, I had great teachers, but they, they it was sit still, sit quiet, don't, don't move the whole time. And I can remember in fifth grade, I specifically remember... By the I, way, pe- hmm. that's not what a great teacher would do. Yeah. So they weren't great actually. teachers. That's a good point. So I'm sitting in this class and I'm I'm feeling like the new kid and I just I just want to talk to people and I'm like, yeah, hey, how are you? I just want to hear their story. What's going on? And at the time you're, you're you're a kid, so it wasn't necessarily their story, but just I wanted to know about like what their name was and what their favorite color was. And it was time to take a test. And I remember the test sat in front of me, like and you got put in front of me, and we were given 30 minutes to do this test. I don't remember what subject it was, but I do remember reaching into my desk and making the conscious choice that instead of doing the test and it wasn't rebellious, it was just, I can't like, I just remember thinking like, I can't do this right now. Like I'm not, my mind's not here. My mind is somewhere else. And I remember reaching into my desk and pulling out my Elmer's glue and squirting glue all over my hand and then patting it on my hand, blowing it dry, and then trying to peel a very nice handprint off of my hand with the Elmer's glue so that I could put it on my desk and admire the beautiful handiwork that I just did. I like it. And one of my friends, like probably, you know, I I don't know, I was, you know, fifth grade. So I don't remember what the time frame was to me. It might've been around 10 minutes. My friend poked me and was like, take your test. What are you doing? And I remember looking at them and I go, I'll get to it. I'm not there yet. And I'm I'm not there yet because I wasn't I wasn't there I just couldn't it my mind I I don't know I couldn't tell you even why I was not there and it, I n- was not a rebellious kid I did what I was told I wanted to do it but I just needed to move around first mm-hmm. I I needed a break I needed a break I think and and there wasn't a break it was the kids that were rewarded were the kids that sat still. Exactly. And I, I had to talk. I had to move. And and, and and here's the thing. I was the kid who could sit still and I did my homework and I was great at in academia. Still, like that's, I, I can do it. But I still believe when we look at the system that we have created, the idea that it's going to work for everybody is, you know, ridiculous. Here, here's the other thing. There's so much that goes into this. This, first of all, I want to say shout out to all the teachers out there. 
they you guys are amazing and what you're doing is amazing with and and I know difficult. So if you're a teacher who has to make your class sit down and be quiet, more power to you. I understand that that's the way that things are done. I so I'm I'm not criticizing I'm not saying the teachers are bad. I'm saying it's, you know, I'm I'm talking about the system, the setup. And first of all, if you look at the science around the way that we do school, you know, the science says that it's terrible and it kills creativity and it kills people's desire to learn. So it makes them not want to learn, not enjoy it. So science, you know, homework, test taking, all of those things are not reflections of what's really going on for, you know, all this stuff. So again, I was a great, I'm a great test taker. So I'm not, you know, telling, saying the system didn't work well for me. It did. And just saying it doesn't, you know, to believe that it works well for everyone. The other thing, guys, is if you read the neuroscience about what sugar and flour does to the brain, at the ability for children, processed food, how processed food hits the system and what specifically it does to the brain in adults, let alone children. It is not a surprise to me that a lot of children can't sit still when ingesting that. And listen, my kids eat sugar and flour. So let's not, let's be clear. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I'm not, I, I trying to take that away from them would be an act of God, right? Like, I, again, not saying that that's the case. I'm just saying, like, I have to consider, right? I give my kids a donut, right? That, you oh, know, we'll, your God. Yeah. We three year old twins in mm-hmm. quarantine with a donut. Yeah, we'll take them Ooh. to get a donut. But here's the thing I do not expect them to be able to practice tracing letters after that. <laughs> I we take them to a park. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like so right. so what I'm saying is like Again, it's not about good or bad. It's about expectations. Like, I just think that so often we're not honest with ourselves about all these different things or maybe uninformed. And the uninformed piece is like, look, you give people, you give kids a bunch of frosted flakes and whatever cereals and blah, 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 blah in the morning, whatever it is. Listen, I do it. Not, not saying it's, I'm just saying I don't expect my kids to be obedient academics after doing that because frankly, the neuroscience shows that it's brain fog. It's all these other things. They're not going to be just highly on point. And is feeding a kid, you know, is it possible to feed a kid really amazing diet? Yeah, probably. Is it a pain in the ass? Yes, it is. And, and I don't know how to overcome it and I don't have the answers for that. But I will say that I have to be honest with myself. Like if I'm going to give the kid a donut, I should expect some behaviors that are in line with the chemistry that goes on after they ingest it because that's not really fair. And so we have these schedules, right? These sleeps, you know, that you have to get up and go to bed at certain time. Like you're, you're make, you have to get up and be in class at a certain time. You have to, you're going to eat breakfast depending on what you eat. You have to sit still. It's for a certain period of time. Like all these things. Yeah. Like some kids are going to need to be drugged in order to manage that situation. And maybe a lot of them will be boys. Like, I just think that be honest with ourselves about it. And that's, that's kind of the thing. And look, I, I've been on medication a long time for depression stuff and, and it's saved my life. Like it's been a huge, huge help for me. But again, I'm also honest with myself about the situation, which is if I ate better, I probably would need less medication. You know, if I, if I 
ate really clean and worked out all the time, I could probably control it without the medication. So again, it's really, I, I personally think that the important part of the conversation when talking about pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical interventions is being honest about A, what we're willing to do, B, why we're doing it, right? Why we're doing it and see, you know, what we're willing to live with. And for me, for me, I'm willing to live with the fact that I am a work in progress on the food and exercise thing and a, a genuine work in progress, a genuine concerted regular effort to make it better. And I need that pharmaceutical help at this point, at this stage in the game. So that's all of that is a long monologue about, um, you know, with, with regard to Jay and what he was talking about. I think it is difficult to assess what's going on at that time in that kid's life, in that house, at that, you know, with the, that doctor at those times. And so I can easily see how that happened. The part that where you lose me is the Klonopin. That's where you lose me. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's where I go. Uh, yeah, no, like that's, that's completely, that feels to me like lazy prescribing. That was and that was definitely an injustice right there. Yeah. So I thought I thought his story was really thought provoking around that kind of stuff, right? Because you can go lots of people go in lots of different directions depending on their experience. Some people are like worst thing ever. Some people save my life. Some people something in the middle. Whatever. So I think that it was definitely thought provoking around that. And also, you know, this idea that a prescription, a piece of paper written by somebody saying that you should or can take something at a certain dosage, that that means that it's somehow different than taking something else at a, at a specific dosage. It needs to be smashed. Like you're, let's, let's stop worrying about whether it's a street drug or alcohol or whether it's from prescription. Like, does it affect you from the neck up? That's it. Let's That's make, really good. Let's make that really simple. Does it change your brain chemistry so you feel differently? Did it affect you from the neck up? Okay, great. That's a drug. <laughs> like, right. whatever it is, it affects you from the neck up, period, end of story. So I guess if that's your threshold, then whether or not someone, like I could write you a prescription for, you know, half ounce of cocaine, right? Here, here's a half ounce of cocaine. Do this daily. If I wrote that on a piece of paper and made it a prescription, does it change anything about it? No. No, not at all. Certain laboratories use cocaine to inject into mice and do different different uh, experiments. If, if they wrote me a prescription for the cocaine from a lab, but it came from a lab, does that make it, it any less of a relapse? I mean, no. Like we have to think through, and I think this is where things get kind of tricky for people is this idea like, oh, well, I got it from a doctor. Well, it's a drug and sometimes that drug can be therapeutic and sometimes it's not, right? So it's really more about whether or not the thing you're taking is therapeutic and not really about where it came from or who gave it to you. Yeah, right. that's really good. So like if I, if I am in a car accident and I'm given opiates, right? And let's say I'm sober, let's say now, I would take them because they are therapeutic in that event, in that situation, if I needed them, obviously. Whether or not, that doesn't make them not a drug, <laughs> That makes them therapeutic. It makes the situation called for. It makes it under uh, supervision. It makes it uh, open and honest and 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 calculated. It doesn't make it not a drug. 
it doesn't make it not an opiate. It's an opiate all day long, no matter what. But if we think about whether or not this, the thing we're doing is therapeutic in the circumstances, that's, that's where you can get into that. But again, if you're buying drugs from a, a doctor through a prescription or through a pharmacy and it's using behavior, then it's using behavior. And I, I, I fail to see why it, we have ca- put it into this other category of like somehow better. Right. Well, I mean, and there's a, another Netflix documentary that's phenomenal called, I think it's called The Pharmacist. Yes. Oh my gosh. Right. You guys check this one out too. Oh this my gosh. I wanted who, to hug. I know. We're going to try and get him on the show. We're going to reach out and see if we can get him on the oh, show. That'd be so great. Right. I know I don't remember his name because I watched it months ago whenever it first came out. But oh. essentially this man, uh, he family of four... His, he lost his son. I'm going to give a little bit of this away. Spoiler alert. But he lost his son to, I think it was a drug deal gone bad. And and I, is he out of Ohio, I think, yeah, if I'm I think remembering so. that correctly? If I'm incorrect on all this, then I'll, I'll correct it in the show notes. But essentially, what happens in this documentary, you, f- you find out about what happened to his son pretty early on. And the documentary is his quest to rectify this and to find out what happened to his son, to track down the person that murdered him, to find out why. And then this man's a pharmacist in a small community. And he started noticing things that he never would have noticed before in people coming and picking up prescriptions. And he would ask them about their symptoms like, well, are okay, you have a prescription for clonopin. Where are you experiencing pain? What did you have an injury? Were you recently in an accident? And these people will just kind of gloss it over. And so it this is like a, a I think it's like a four-part series. Anyways, it's it's so worth watching because what this man uncovers is a drug ring in his area that is affecting hundreds of people. And a doctor who is opens up basically, what's it called? A, a pill mill is kind of like the term for it. And it's a doctor who's just churning out prescriptions and just with yeah, a little bit too really no reason. Very obviously, I was I was unimpressed with her drug dealing skills. Yeah, it, I mean, it was very obvious in the beginning, but I was like, geez, that's really yeah. But I mean, yeah, lines out the door. Think about they, how quickly that would have been shut down if that were, those were street drugs. That exactly, and so I think it was in this this documentary <laughs> I mean, where they it talked been about a, that would have been a done deal so long before yep. any of that. Well, and in the people they they interview a few people who you know went and got drugs from this pill mill, and they said they said, "Hey, like, what, how did you feel going here?" And they said, "There's something about getting a prescription because you don't feel like you're doing something illegal. You don't feel like you're doing anything wrong, so you feel like you're on the up and up." So you feel like this is allowed, whereas if that were for heroin or something or cocaine, you know, it it obviously wouldn't be allowed because these are illegal drugs. But because you could get a script from a doctor, it's also doing something in your mind where you're going, right? Oh, I'm going to justify this because you know, you there's something, and they would say there's something that like we kind of like we knew that this is too much, right? That we're taking, but at the same time, we're looking at a script from a doctor, so this has to be okay, and so it justifies the use. I think the the one piece where people are correct is that it has a very specific dosage and you know where it came from and you know what's in it. That That is true. That you, you can, those things are verifiable. Um, you do know what's in it. But also people are taking things like Oxycontin 
and, you know, Roxy's and Vicodin and all that, guess what? They have a lot of aspirin in them. They have a lot of other things that are super damaging to the liver. And so when you're taking those, you are also ingesting unnecessary amounts of other things. So, so you know, I, I, this is getting into the weeds with it, but it's just, you know, it's a psychological, if we're on it, that's where I kind of come back to with like, if we're honest with ourselves, right? You were saying like, there's this psychological thing, getting a script from the doctor, you know, knowing where it came from, so on and so forth. There's a psychological piece, right? Of where what you tell yourself. And what I'm saying is exactly we need to stop telling ourselves lies. Like that's the most important thing I have learned in recovery in general is like, stop lying to yourself. That's the first step. Doesn't mean you're not willing to do it anyway. That's, 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 that's other piece. Like I have had many experiences where I've said, this is the truth. This is why I'm doing this. This is what's happening. And I'm not, and I'm going to continue to do it, but I'm honest with myself because if you can be honest with yourself, you will stop yourself from doing things for, you know, long periods of time or you will you will out your, you know, whatever that is. But you are much better off just saying, this is where I'm not willing to stop doing this, but this is the truth. That That is a key piece of a, a life in continuing recovery. Because if you can be honest with yourself, then eventually you will be able to change your behavior. But lying to yourself and believing those lies, it, it, that's that's a dead end. Absolutely. And that's such that's such great advice. That's just such great advice to to remember. Was there anything else that you got out of Jay's episode or that you felt like was important to kind of highlight from there? Yeah. Um, I think just to mention that, you know, Jay, he's in recovery and he is in recovery from prescription pills and he separates prescription pills from other substances. And that's not something that's typically, or at least in the 12-step community, uh, it's not something that's honored, so to speak. And, you know, for, I think Jay said this, and I just want to come, I just want to say like, look, whatever makes your life better, that's what's important. Okay. Like that's whatever, you know, my recovery doesn't have to look like your recovery, whatever, like that. We came here to get a better life. We came here to improve. It's not about, you know, does mine match yours? For me, when I ingest any of those substances, I have a physical reaction that causes cravings, that causes me to go and do more of it, whether it's my drug of choice or not. And Jay does not have that experience. So he is able to drink moderately. So that's that's unusual, but I think I think it's also a recovery that should be honored because it's one that gets cast away because it's not in line with the twelve step kind of model, the abstinence based model, and uh, and I definitely want to honor whatever recovery looks like that makes your life better because that is the whole point. <laughs> It, it's the whole point. It's not a. It's not a recovery contest. You know. It's. It's a. It's a. We came here to get better and make our lives better. And if it's doing that, if it's working for you, then great. Absolutely. And we were really thankful to Jay for sharing that, and and really grateful to be able to, as Ashley said, show this type of recovery, um, and have it represented on the podcast because we we really want to be able to tell many, many different stories of recovery. And we definitely recommend working with someone who can help you 
where you can be accountable if you're if you're in recovery or if you're seeking recovery, if that's something that you you feel like you you need and that you're wanting, we definitely recommend working with someone, you know, in order to to help you, to help you find that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whatever whatever makes your life better is is good and important. So I don't want to cast judgment. I, I know it works for me, you know, but that's, that doesn't mean that's what everybody needs. So, well, thank you for everything that you do and being wonderful. And we are in May, which is mental health month. Yay. Party on. Let's get our mental our quarantine mental health on. And we created a very special quarantine hope cast for you that just came out uh, last Thursday. So uh, we just wanted to give you a little resource to just inspire hope. And if you're feeling frustrated, down, sad, any of those things, and you need a good pick-me-up, then listen to the Courage Change Recovery Podcast, COVID Hopecast. Ooh, it just came out on the 7th. Baby. For Mental Health Month. Oh, please follow us on social media. Get on our Instagram. Look, I go on there. I talk. I do things. It might be funny. It might not. Uh, I respond to people. The Courage to Change underscore podcast. If you like what we're doing and you listen to this podcast, please, please, please go subscribe to it. Do it right yes. now. Go to your phone. <laughs> open up Instagram. You open it up 300 times a day. Open it up right now. Click follow. Yay. And share. And sh- share stuff. Yeah. Or whatever. You don't even have to share. Just let's just let's just this is one behavior change at a time. Let's just <laughs> let's just start with follow. For mental health month. Christiana, don't go OCD yes. and make everybody Serious. do everything. Okay. Seriously. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, but Ashley really does respond to things. I'll go in there to post things and I'm like, what is this message? I'm like, did I, I'm thinking I'm like up late at night responding to things and I don't remember. I'm like, look at Ashley go. She's, she is the one that's responding to those messages. People be sliding into my DMs. Did I say that right? (laughs) I'm so uncool. Oh, I am too. The only people that keep me cool are my dancers. The, the people, the dancers that I, that I teach and that are on my on my team, which, oh, I can say this now. <gasps> Guess what's coming out at the end of May? What? My dance company video about addiction. Oh, I First can't. in a series of six. We are so excited. I don't have a date for you yet, but we will share it as soon as we get it. We're going to share it on our social media as well. First in a series of mental health concept videos, my dance company is going to be putting on and the courage change will share that. And it's just basically the whole purpose of it is to break and help end the stigma and help people understand the suffering behind it and what people are going through and to kind of humanize it instead of just labeling, right? It's, there's a lot of labeling in society and, and I think it's, that's human nature, but taking it a step further and putting a dance to the fact to communicate the idea and the fact that these are our friends, our brothers, our sisters, and um, you're going to hear Ashley's voice in it too. Ooh. She shares something very special. So stay tuned. We're really excited about that. And we thought it was really important for it to come out during mental health month. So yay. All right, kiddos. 
what is it? Tiger King says, all you cats and kittens. <laughs> no, it's not the Tiger King that says that. It's Carol Baskin. Oh. <laughs> all right, all you cool cats and kittens. <laughs> I, I cannot stop myself from saying that all the time. I just can't. It's the funniest thing. All you cool cats and kittens. Uh, I know everybody hates Carol Baskin, so it's probably not a good thing, but... I <laughs> desperately feel like saying that all the time. The Carol Baskin merchandise that has come out since then, i that's another thing that makes me cry laughing. It's so funny. Oh, it's so funny. Oh, you cool cats and kittens. <laughs> you cannot replace that with Hello Beautiful People, though. <laughs> I know, but it's You'll, so you'll have an angry mob. <laughs> I know. I know. Everybody, everybody. That, the Hello Beautiful People literally was like the first thing I thought of to say on the first day of our podcast. It was, it kind of came out of nowhere. nowhere. Now it's got a cult following. We've got people like, Oh, can you have her say hello, beautiful people? Like, yes, she'll say it in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Every week. All right. Well, we love you all. Thank you for being here. If this is your first time, please come back and we'll see you next week. We didn't scare you away already. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) With my, with my soapbox. If, if if you're bored of my opinions, which is totally fine, just just listen to the interviews. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, these might not be for you. Yeah. But if so, which many people love hearing it because it gives a good dynamic view on everything, then stay tuned for another After the Episode in two weeks. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.